Uh, got any fact nerds out here? People like love facts? A few people? Okay, great. Uh, I've got some facts that I want to share with you guys. Some amazing facts. Here's your amazing facts for this week. All right, we're going to go through these really quick. But these are some amazing facts that have just blown my mind recently. Number one is this. Let me get an image up here. The medical term for ice cream headaches is sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. All right? So next time you're with a small child and they wince in pain, cry for a doctor and say, this child has sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. And that doctor will immediately know what to do and you might just save a life. Next one. This is Hafthor Julius Bjornsson. And recently in the news, I don't know if you saw this, but Bjornsson just broke a record. This log that he's got on his back is 640 kilograms, which is 1,400 pounds. And he picked it up on his back and he walked five steps, breaking a record that had stood for 1,000 years. This was, a, this was a story in the, Ice, uh, the Icelandic sagas. It's kind of their history books. And this guy had picked up a log like this. It took 50 men to put it on his back, and he took three steps. And Bjornsson recently just took five. Next one. In the history of the world, we estimate that there have been 10 to the power of 30 individual snowflakes. That's the number 10, followed by 30 zeros. So get that into your brain, Okay. 10 to the power of 30 snowflakes in the history of the creation of the world. Every single one of them has been completely unique. There are almost an infinite number of, conf- of, of conglomerations of water molecules that create a snowflake. And every single one of those 10 to the power of 30 has been unique. Next, please. To produce a single phrase, there are about 100 muscles in your chest, neck, jaw, tongue, and lips that collaborate together to make that possible. Everybody say, wow. wow. You just demonstrated my point. Good job. Next one. The largest desert in the world, the Sahara, is 3.5 million square miles. 3.5 million square miles of sand. Do you know how big Florida is? 60,000 square miles. That's crazy. Next one. The average lifespan of a major league baseball is five to seven pitches. Unless they're being pitched at the Florida Marlins, in which they have a little bit longer shelf life. Sports joke for Mark. Right there. Next one. There are somewhere between 100 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And there are more than 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Maybe as many as 500 billion galaxies in the universe. When you calculate that out, that means that there may be between 10 and 200 sextillion stars in the universe. Anybody feel pretty small? Whoa. More snowflakes than stars. Next one. This is my little brother, Joel. He is the most fascinating creature on the planet. I texted my brother yesterday in the morning. I said, Joel, I need some interesting facts. I think I woke him up. And he goes, okay. And then I got this stream of texts. The first one said, female ferrets have to breed or else they will die. Croissants are shaped like a crescent moon in honor of the, um, the Viennese destroying the Turkish in the, in the war between uh, those two great kingdoms. Uh, Genghis Khan 
uh, killed so many people that the actual carbon levels in the earth depleted for that period of history. And he went on and on and on. He said, is that enough? I said, yes, it is. Thank you very much. Go back to bed. <laughs> Next one. This is one of the most fascinating creatures on the planet. Does anybody know what this is? Mantis shrimp. A mantis shrimp is anywhere between 6 and 12 inches in size. And you look at this and you say, what a beautiful creature. It's so refined, so many colors. It just exudes the beauty of God, yes, but it also is the most dangerous creature on the planet. Let me tell you a couple facts about the mantis shrimp. In our eyes, there are cones, and these little cones kind of receive color. Okay, light waves come in in different frequencies producing color. So a dog has two kinds of cones in its eyes, green and blue. So dogs can see green, blue, and a little bit of yellow. We have three cones in our eyes, red, green, and blue. And that enables us to see the full spectrum of what we deem is visible light. Mantis shrimp have 16 different kinds of cones in those beady, nasty little eyes. 16. We have three. This guy has these two forearms packed up like this. And this is the way that he attacks his prey. Say little crabs coming by or whatever. And this guy punches with all his might. And he punches holes in the middle of crabs. And he shatters them. They can't keep these animals in fish tanks because they'll walk up and they'll punch the fish tank and shatter it. His punch is so strong that it has the same velocity as a twenty-two caliber rifle. If human beings had one-tenth of the power that he has in his punch in ours, we could launch a baseball into orbit. He punches so fast that his fist boils the water around his fist, creating a vacuum uh, uh, behind it that is pure nothingness. And when that bubble collapses, it actually emits light. It's called, it's called uh, where is it? Sonoluminescence. Information itself, information about information is fascinating. We create as much information in two days now as we did from the dawn of man until 2003. The entire history of humanity from the dawn of man until 2003, we create that every two days. That's something like five exabytes of data or a quintillion bytes or 10 to the 18th power. You and your brain, you are fascinating. I don't know if you know this about you, but you are pretty intricate and amazing. In your brain, you have over 100,000 miles of nerve fibers in your brain alone. So we could take the nerve fibers out of your brain and we could wrap it around the earth four times. And the storage capacity of your brain, do you know what you're capable of storing? Up to two, as much as 2.5 petabytes that's 10 to the power of 15, 10 with 15 zeros after it of bytes. It's about 3 million hours of television that you could store in your brain. So you could watch Friends over and over and over and over and over again, as I know many of you have. So tonight we're talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge. We, in the, kind of the first package, if you think of it in those terms, we talked about the five-fold ministry, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. This next set of gifts that we're looking at, one can think of them as kind of perspective gifts, knowledge, wisdom, discernment, intercession. And so what we're talking about here tonight is knowledge. And I want you to really think of knowledge in terms of, it's a gift about receiving, 
It's like primarily a gift about receiving. And then later on, we talk about like wisdom. We're talking more about a gift that's about offering. I think that the gift of knowledge is a really great example of the way that the Lord works very often, that God redeems things that he's already written into our DNA. So I want us to start by thinking in terms that the gift of knowledge itself is something that is inherently available to all of us. Our ability to think, to retain information, to know anything from day one itself is a gift because it's an indicator of life and of sentience and of spirit. And so it's not so much being given a a brand new gift, but redeeming a gift that is already there and it being given these new spiritual connotations. And so that's what I want us to look at tonight. We're going to, you know, we'll mention a little bit about the relationship between just merely acknowledging facts and then what we might call divine knowledge. But it's just so important when we're going into this, I want you to understand that all knowledge can lead us to a greater awareness of God. Because knowledge at the end of the day should be the thing that makes us step back and say, wow, wow, God is amazing. This world he has created for us is amazing. He has created us to be amazing. We are so intricate. We have such a capacity to be able to reflect who he is. And so when we're talking about knowledge, that's what I want us to keep coming back to tonight. And so I want to define knowledge in this way. The gift of knowledge is our capacity to experience the lived-in reality of Jesus. The gift of knowledge is our capacity to experience the lived-in reality of Jesus. I was thinking about what what are we talking about when we're talking about knowledge at its very core. Knowledge is relationship, isn't it? Knowledge is an acknowledgement that there is now a relationship between two entities. Because what's the opposite of knowledge? It's ignorance. And ignorance, whether willful or just by happenstance, means that I am not aware of the other. I'm not aware of that other thing, that other event, that moment, that person, perhaps God himself. And we're talking about knowledge, we're inherently talking about the establishment of a relationship between two things. And when we're talking about this spiritual realm, we can very easily use the language of love, that language as an inherent relationship, a togetherness, an interaction, a space between two others that is being filled in with something. Now, I think in some churches, not all, but some churches, there's a very unfortunate relationship between knowledge and the church. I think in very many pockets of the church, we actually fear knowledge. I don't know if this was your story, but for me, there were many moments in my life within the church itself where I was taken aback because I was shamed for being smart. People would say, oh, oh, you're one of those intellectual types. And the kind of underlying communication there was, oh, intellectual knowledge is, that's, no, 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 you need to put that away. You need to let go of intellectual knowledge and you just need to move over to this other kind of knowledge. And I think for some of us growing up in the church, we were told that knowledge is, is bad. Learning is bad. But what happens when we fear knowledge? We inherently operate based on ignorance. And pretty soon we start to hide from the world. And we, we, we step into things stumbling around in the dark not knowing what we're talking about. 
And so I want us to look scripturally at what we're talking about when we're talking about divine knowledge. So join me, please, in John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 37 and 38. This is near the end of what we call Holy Week. Jesus has been captured by the Romans, and he's been beaten, and now he's being brought before Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of Judea, who had been sent from Rome by the emperor. And they begin this little dialogue, and I just want to look at two verses from this fascinating little dialogue, because it's one of those scriptures, if we don't understand the context, it's very easy for us to skip over and to continue to move on in the story. And so we're going to begin in verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. And then he walks away, and he goes back to the Sanhedrin. Now, there's some really fascinating interactions going on here between two very different worldviews. Pontius Pilate, of course, is a Roman. He's from Italy, and he's been transported over to Judea to fill the role of government, governor. So, what was Pontius Pilate's native language? Latin. Latin. All right, gold star. Who said that? All right, right there. Michael, you get a gold star. Good job. Yes, His native language was Latin. All right, now Jesus is from Judea, and he's a Jew. What is his native language? He reads Hebrew, but he speaks Aramaic. Excellent, very good. Banana stars for everybody. Banana stars. Banana stickers, or combine them, get a banana star. Yes, Jesus speaks Aramaic, but he reads Hebrew. So you've got these two different languages that are in this conversation. Now, obviously, they don't speak English like this. So what language do you suppose Pontius Pilate and Jesus were speaking together as a common tongue? Greek! Who, did, who said that? Somebody, no, somebody else said it before I did. Was it Lloyd? Back there, John, very good. John gets all the gold banana stars. Yes, so Greek was the language of education. It was the language of commerce. It was the language that kind of everybody learned so they could all communicate together, much in the way that, that English operates in a lot of the world today. But not only are we talking about two different languages, we're also talking about two different worldviews here. In the Greek and the Roman world, the word for truth in, in, in Latin is veritas, and in Greek it's aletheia. And truth in the, in the Greco-Roman understanding of the word, is some sort of object reality, something that's over there. The same word veritas for true also means real. So I say this podium is true, it's real, I can see it, observe it, touch it, interact with it, or I can observe it from a distance. Now this line of thinking when we're talking about truth is very much in line with the way that the Western world still operates. When we talk about truth, what do we say? We say truth is somewhere out there. We talk about arriving at the truth. But what we're inherently saying is truth is an external objective reality that I can measure and I can take notes and I can run it through the scientific method. Now, the thing about that worldview is that something can be true and it may have no effect on me and my life. I can say that something's true, but it might not change who I am in any way at all. Because it's objective, it's over there, and I can choose to be over here, or I can arrive at it. But Jesus 
did not grow up Greek. Jesus did not grow up Roman. Jesus had a very different worldview. The Hebrew philosophical worldview centers around the idea of truth, and the word for truth in Hebrew is emet. Everybody say emet. Amet, okay. So the Hebrew word for truth, if you were to walk up to a rabbi and say, what is truth? Just like Pilate, if you said, what is truth? He'd say, God is faithful. Now, if you walked up to a Roman, you said, what is truth? He would say, it's an external objective reality. But when you ask a Hebrew, he would say, God is faithful. Now, that's really hard for us because God is faithful is the kind of statement that we need to run through the scientific method in order to, to figure out whether or not it is something that is true. But the Hebrew perspective was actually based on that because Hebrew truth is not an external objective reality, but an internal dynamic relational reality. And so all of Hebrew philosophy and religion was established on this reality that God is faithful. And it's my lived-in encounter of the reality of that that transforms me outside. So let's step back into this story, looking at for those worldviews. You are a king then, said Pilate. So Pilate says, here's a fact. I want you to authenticate this fact. Tell me that this thing is true. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. You want a fact. You want this little objective reality thing that you can tack and say, yes, good, very well. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is saying, you want facts, but I'm here to tell you that people who are on the side of truth have had an experience of me. And it's changed who they are. They've been transformed. So is it any wonder that Pilate walks away with that question on his lips, quid es veritas, what is truth? Because Pilate doesn't have a category for what it is that Jesus is talking about. So when we're talking about knowledge and talking about that lived-in reality of who Jesus is that transforms us, it takes us beyond merely understanding a series of facts or memorizing things, but it's actually experiencing something, and it changes us. And so I want to talk about those two kinds of knowledge in that light, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So knowledge of God, the first is this. Divine knowledge is a light that reveals things for what they truly are. In our intercessory prayer group on Friday mornings, we've been going through Psalm 119. It's the largest chapter in the Bible, and it's, it's, it's broken down into the, the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the line of each chunk of it begins with one of those letters. And so this week we were reading, and, I, and we read this in verses 130 and 135, and I thought this was such a beautiful demonstration of what knowledge looks like in the kingdom. David says this of the Lord. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. I love that metaphor of light when we talk about God. It's this consistent theme right from the very first page. We read in Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his character. And I love that so much. God is like the sun and the rays that come off the sun. We call that Jesus. In 1 John, it says, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And when the light is, is exposed on us, we are transformed and we are changed. What happens when light is shown in very dark places? We stop being blind. 
light dissipates the blindness of ignorance. Where once we were walking around in the dark, bumping off everything, not able to see our own hands in front of our faces, when the light of God shines upon us, we're now able to see ourselves for who we truly are, and we're able to see the world for what it really is. And so light dissipates ignorance and blindness, and it also exposes fear and hatred and lies and all of these things that would seek to tell us a very different story than the one that God desires to tell us. So that this idea of divine knowledge as a light, I think, is such a beautiful metaphor because it speaks of not just acknowledgement, but experience of the reality of God. The second thing about knowing God is this. The gift of knowledge breaks down the barrier between the spiritual and the secular. And I even hesitate to use those words because don't we create this false dichotomy in the world? They say, here's all the spiritual things over here and here's all the secular things over here. I think it's a tragedy when the only times that we are actively seeking to know God are when we're studying scripture or we're in some sort of church function. And then we spend all of this other time during a week learning and processing information and having experiences, but we treat them as inherently secular. We treat them as if they have nothing to do with God. Many of you are students or you've been students and you sat in these classrooms and and that was never really established that all of that stuff, if you allow it, will inherently speak to the glory of God. What is glory? The glory is his manifest presence. Where previously we were ignorant of his presence, now we recognize it. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about glory. When I shared those facts at the beginning, those amazing facts, some of them are very funny, some of them are really hard for us to wrap our heads around, but what what does that do for your understanding of God when you learn those kind of things? What does it teach you about his character? What does it teach you about his ways or about his plans? Part of the spiritual gift of knowledge is the ability to make the connection between the things that we learn in everyday life and the reality of who God is because he is the author of all of this. Even the mantis shrimp. Even Major League Baseball. Although I'm hesitant to admit that. But the evidence of God is all around us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks to the people there and he says, you know, the the evidence of God has been made plain. God's invisible qualities are made plain in the world. And there's this consistent theme how all of creation sings to the glory of God. It all testifies to the reality of who he is. And so why wouldn't we want to know about the world around us? Why wouldn't this insatiable hunger that some of us have to grow to know God also extend to his creation? Because everything hums with his character. Everything radiates his glory. And the third thing about knowing God is this. When we know more about God's character, we know what to anticipate from him. I've said before, I think one of the big question marks at the center of what it means to be human is what is God like? And it breaks my heart when I sit with people who share things that are going on in their lives and they ascribe things to God that do not testify to his character. There have been too many times where I have sat with people and they've shared things that are going on in their life and they say, I don't know if this is God or Satan. Think about that for a second. I don't know if this thing going on in my life is the demonstration of ultimate good or ultimate evil. 
because some of us have never been taught what God is like. I remember when I was a child growing up in the church, being very blessed to grow in knowledge of who God is. And like many of you, perhaps, when I was very little, God was little more than a character in a book. But what happens when we read books? We don't ascribe things to the characters we're reading that would be outside of their character. Can you imagine if Tom Sawyer just woke up on page 168 of the eponymous book and said, you know what, I'm not living the American dream. And he leaves his small town and he moves into the city and he becomes a stockbroker and he, he accumulates all this wealth and then he gets a, you know, a jet plane and he flies around the world and you know, then he like, you know, gets hit by gamma radiation and he becomes the Incredible Hulk. Like, we would never do that. We'd say that's ridiculous. That's not in Tom Sawyer's character. That's not what he's like. Why do we do that with God? We have his story. We have his, his, his identity, his character is written into our DNA. But sometimes we ascribe things to God that are completely outside of his character. I was very blessed to grow up in this way because I was given this foundation as I read these stories of Jesus I knew what he was like as a character and as I grew I gained the language to understand the experiences of who he was because I had learned who he was does that make sense when not what knowledge does is it gives us language for the experiences that we have with God and with Jesus And I believe that when we grow in our knowledge, especially that place of spiritual knowledge, of understanding spiritual things, we are guided by what we know, not by what we feel. Very often, as individuals, we walk through this life being guided by how we feel in the moment. And I believe that our emotions are a very beautiful gift, but they're not intended to be the thing that guides us. We're guided by what we know, what we take by faith. And that in and of itself is a spiritual gift. And I believe that when we accept the gift of knowledge in our lives and God begins to transform us by the renewing of our minds, we're able to say, now that I know how to think, I can give myself permission to feel. And our emotions come into alignment with God's desires for us. I love, and if you ever want to do a really great Bible study, read the Gospel of John and see how often John talks about belief. And then go to the letter of 1 John and see that John's language has changed from believing to knowing. He starts off 1 John saying, this is what we know, what we have seen, what we have experienced with our own eyes. And that's the place that we want to grow. We want to grow from believing something to knowing it. And then all of the other components of who we are are brought into alignment with God's intentions for us. I think to put it in the language of love, we want to know our beloved. We want to know our beloved. When we're in love, the most mundane, asinine facts gain weight. They gain substance. This is why I think it's so beautiful at the end of the day when when two people who are in love have that conversation. They say, how was your day? And the person gives you the most meaningless drivel about their day and how, what they ate for lunch and what Janine said on the phone. Da, 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 da. And when you're in love, you just sit there and you listen to it and you bask in the glory of the other. Because the most mundane things going on in your life have weight. They have meaning where anybody else on the planet would like just completely tune out. You're completely 
present. And so I believe that when we want to know our beloved, we want to know everything about them. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would be to say, I'm so in love with this person over there, and someone begins to ask us, oh, well, um, you know, what color are their eyes? Uh, you know what? I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, what, like, what, what movies do they like? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. And people keep asking us questions about this person, and we don't know anything about them. One has to question eventually, are you truly in love with that person if you've never taken the time to know them? And I think that's doubly true when it comes to God. If we love God, we have this hunger, we want to know everything about him. We say, God, I want to know even the most minute details about you. I want to see you in everything in creation. Illuminate the reality of who you are in the bedeviled mantis shrimp. See, everything becomes that opportunity to grow in intimacy with God. So this is knowing God. What about knowledge about us in the light of who God is? This is the first and perhaps the most important thing I will say tonight. The greatest knowledge is to know that you are known. Does anybody need to hear that tonight? The greatest knowledge that you can possess is to know that you are known. Paul says this so beautifully in Galatians 4 when he's kind of getting the Galatians back on course because they've been deceived. He says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And I love that little phrase because it feels like almost an afterthought in what Paul's saying, but perhaps it's the most profound thing here when he says, you know God, or wait, you're known by him. And is that not much more beautiful? What is the other deep question within us? Am I known? Am I seen? Am I valued? That, that acknowledgement that we are known changes everything. Because I believe that true knowledge enlarges our capacity to be loved, and it enlarges our capacity to love. Again, Paul in Ephesians 3, one of my favorite verses here, um, verses 17 to 19, he says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Oh, do you love that phrase? To know this love that surpasses knowledge. How do I know something that surpasses knowledge? What a profound mystery Paul offers us here that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I think this, this is the place where, where the knowledge, the, the, the capacity for knowledge that we're born into that has God's fingerprint all over it truly becomes a spiritual gift. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in and redeems and reworks and reshapes our, our ability for knowledge and he takes us to that next place, the place of encounter. And I've heard someone say this before about this, this verse, and I think it's so beautiful. What is the love of Christ like? How wide is the love of Christ? The love of Christ transcends all of our tribal hierarchies that we establish in this earth. Any, any way that we seek to divide up people based on what we think is their value, Jesus transcends all of that. 
And how long is the love of Christ? The love of Christ stretches back to in the beginning God created. And the love of Christ stretches forward to a time when there will be no more tears. And that we are in full and complete union with God. How high is the love of Christ? It reaches to the heavens. It reaches to the throne room of God and beckons us to sit there with him. And how deep is the love of Christ? It's deeper than death. It goes past the grave. It reaches down into Hades. And it conquers death there. How do we know something that surpasses knowledge? Because we experience it. We swim around in it. It becomes our story. And this is the third thing about knowledge of us. True knowledge takes into itself the intellectual as well. Our minds become part of the process of knowledge. Solomon loved to learn, and we consider him the wisest man who ever lived in 2 Kings. It talks about how he had memorized thousands of songs and poems, and he was an expert in botany and in biology and architecture, and people came from the entire known world to sit at his feet and to learn from him because Solomon saw in every little nugget of creation the face of God, and it all drew him closer to him. Jesus loved to learn. In Luke chapter 2, we have this story where, where the, the, the Holy Family goes to Jerusalem and, and Jesus gets lost and his parents are freaking out and they're trying to find him and they walk into the temple and it says they find Jesus sitting at the feet of the teachers learning and asking questions. Can you imagine how funny it would be if, if Jesus, like all these people are asking questions and Jesus gets up and goes, uh, I've got the answer. But no, Jesus loved to learn. Because what does he say to his parents? He says, didn't you know that I would be found in my father's house? Learning about him. Seeking his face. I believe that intellectual knowledge is like the road map for the journey. It's not the substitution for the journey itself. And it's certainly not the destination. But it does give definition and language to the journey that we're on. Recently, a friend of ours moved out to the Pacific Northwest. And she wrote me and she said, I'm I'm interacting with a lot of people here that don't believe in God and and they value logic and knowledge so much and I feel so intimidated. How do I reach out to them and share who God is? And I know that she was in that same position that many of us are when we step out to share the good news is that we meet people who are logical or intellectual and we feel like we can't meet them in that place. And after praying on it for a while, I wrote her back and I said, you know what? Don't believe this lie that they're secular and they're sacred. Don't believe this lie that people who are intellectual and logical inherently don't ask the same questions that you do about meaning, about substance, about life, about love, about connection, because you're living that story. And that's the story that you get to offer to somebody else that transcends intellectual knowledge. And in that, you will find that intellectual knowledge is actually a joy. And so when intimacy is our compass, learning becomes a joy. Brothers and sisters, you have my permission to learn. You have my permission 
to read great, big, dusty books. You have my permission to pull out systematic theology and try to wrap your head around what on earth those guys are talking about. You have permission to learn, to be in awe of the world around you. If intimacy with Father God is your goal, let that stoke up within you a hunger to learn and explore this beautiful and complex world. What else do we do with knowledge? Knowledge makes us responsible. Knowledge makes us responsible. Do you want to live an irresponsible life? Do you want to escape from having any, any obligation in your life? Then keep yourself ignorant. Keep your eyes closed. Keep your ears closed. Don't acknowledge anything around you. Because as soon as you gain knowledge of something, you're responsible for it. But I believe that that's not a horror. That's actually where life is found because we were designed for that. I believe that true knowledge, it helps us to think Christianly. It helps us to think like Christ about the world around us in situations that we have not yet encountered. We need to be able to think Christianly about 21st century situations. Because the things that are going on in this world right now, good and bad, are not the same things that were happening in scriptural times. You cannot go to the Bible as a reference book for everything that happens in your life, because guess what? It doesn't have an answer. It doesn't. Many of the arguments that we have in the church today, and we're so founded on these things, we say this is just an obvious biblical truth, but it's not something that's inherently in the scripture, just reading out on a pure surface level. We have to read deeper. We have to think deeper into things. The Bible left to its own device does not answer the questions of today, but it becomes a tool in the hands of a real and living God through the power of the Holy Spirit to allow us to step into the unknown and say, I have never experienced this. No one in the history of the world has ever experienced this, yet I still know what to do because I know who God is and I know what he's like and he is conforming me to my likeness and he's teaching me how to think like him. I think Christians should be on the forefront of every single discipline in the world. We should be the avant-garde. We should have the best scientists and the, the, the most wonderful storytellers and the most dynamic artists and the most compelling teachers because we need to go into the unknown describing the world for humanity as it points to the reality of God. But too often in the church, we're guided by fear and we're guided by ignorance and we retreat from the ever-increasing knowledge that we have in the world instead of taking it head on and putting ourselves at the forefront of it. And finally, part of the outpouring of a gift of knowledge is the ability to point out Jesus in others and to say, I know him and I see him in you. When we learn the character of God, we start to see him around us. As Mother Teresa said, and you know I'm very fond of quoting her, she says, I can't help it because in every child that I serve, I see the beautiful face of Christ Jesus. And I believe that's where 
the, the reception gift of knowledge becomes the way in which we bless the world because we point out Jesus in people and situations and in creation itself. And so here's my charge for you tonight, brothers and sisters. I want you to find the way that you learn and I want you to dive in with everything you've got. Really, what could be more important than knowing everything you possibly can in this life about who God is? But your capacity to retain knowledge will only take you so far. And that's the beauty, that when we get to that place that we're, we're at the end of our abilities, the Holy Spirit within us kicks up and takes us into a place called grace, where we're able to, to know things that surpass knowledge. And it transforms us. Because it's not about facts. It's not about just retaining information so that we can be the smartest or the best. But it's about allowing the learning that we do to transform us from the inside out because we're having these beautiful and dynamic encounters with the real and living God. If your desire is to love God and others well, your hunger for knowledge is justified. Don't let anybody else take that from you. Learn. Go out. Explore. And stand with me, please. This is what I want you to do this week. At the end of every day, when you're sitting on your couch or you're sitting in your bed, I want you to go into a dialogue with Father. And I want you to ask him, I say, Lord, what did I learn today? What did you show me today? What did you reveal about who you are to me today? And I want you to allow God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to transform all of the seemingly secular and mundane and asinine little facts and experiences that you had into something spiritual. Because it becomes the very place where you encounter God. And when we learn about galaxies, or deserts, or the human body, or the brain, or even mantis shrimps, we step back and we say, look, look at the glory of God. Because this, my friends, is what the spiritual gift of knowledge is all about. So let's pray and let's celebrate God for what it is that he's constantly speaking over us and he's offering us. Lord, I pray for a new outpouring in this room of your spiritual gift of knowledge. Lord, we, we ask that you release your Holy Spirit in this room right now to touch each of us in the place that breaks us past just intellectual knowledge or just earthly knowledge and allows us to have that lived in reality of the height and the depth and the length of Christ Jesus' love for us. Father, we pray that the, the hunger that we have for intimacy with you spreads out and becomes a hunger for learning about the world around us. Lord, that we want to seek the horizon of knowledge. Not because we want to be puffed up, because we want to be built up, Lord. Would you teach us the relationship between love and knowledge? We thank you, Father. We thank you that you've created us to be learning creatures. May we constantly have that attitude of being open-handed before you, learning and discovering and exploring. So, Father, we hand this time to you. We ask that you do with it whatever you see fit. We give you permission to move. There is no fear in this place.
pray all of these things in the strong and the blessed and the beautiful and the all-knowing name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.